This is The Guardian. Today, the US spy tech firm in charge of managing NHS data. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I had a personal experience that caused me to feel differently about these issues at the end of last year, which is I had an abortion. I terminated a pregnancy. Corey Kreider is a lawyer and co-founder of the advocacy group Foxglove. Like millions of others, she's also a user of the National Health Service. And on the phone, the very lovely person who was doing the questionnaire said, may we share a record of your treatment with your GP? And I kind of paused a minute and I started thinking about it. And I started thinking about everything I knew about the direction of travel and about how the argument has been made by people in the center of government that if you take a couple of pieces of data out of that record, then it's not mine anymore, but it's theirs to do with as they see fit, and that it could then go on vaguely at some point to some other company for you know research that I might not support. And, and this is something I've never done before, by the way. I, I paused and I said, actually, no, I'd rather that it didn't. Every week, the NHS plays host to millions of similar interactions between patient and doctor. Many of these discussions are intensely personal. Some are so sensitive they're not even shared with close friends or family. It's partly why the issue of who has access to those patients' records and the data they contain is so fraught. Privacy campaigners fear giving a big tech company potential access to the private health information of patients and have anxieties about the possibility of that data being sold on. And it's also why the awarding of a multi-million pound NHS data contract to an American company that specialises in surveillance technology is so controversial. Today, the NHS in England announced the awarding of a massive new IT contract to a controversial US company. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, Big tech and the NHS's biggest ever data deal. Corey Kreider, you're a lawyer and a campaigner, and you recently wrote a Guardian long read about the NHS and its use of data. Before we get into what happened last week with this major new contract with the US firm Palantir, can you tell me how patient data is currently being stored in the NHS? That's a complicated answer. I mean, it's so complicated because the NHS isn't really one single entity, but a constellation of a whole bunch of different entities. So um, a lot of different hospital trusts, and then, of course, your GPs who are contractors. Um, Historically, health records have not been as joined up for the use of your care or for planning services uh, as 
ideally they would be. So lots of us have had an experience with this in the NHS. I've had one myself where I had to have a, a you know, a, a skin ailment treated at a hospital and they were going to recommend treatment to my GP. And the dermatologist phones me and he says, well, look, you can queue for hours at the hospital pharmacy, or I can use our computer systems to print the letter that will go to your GP in three to four weeks, and that's how long it will take. Or you can yourself come here on your bicycle and cycle it over to your GP, uh, because that's actually going to get you served right. the fastest. Now, we can all see uh, that there is a case for reform there. People should not have to be their own cycle couriers for their record to travel effectively. So um, there is a problem where, at least in some parts of the NHS, you get a partial view of the patient, and that can stand in the way of people's care. The care is not as safe or as effective as it could be, uh, and it can also mean that we can't plan as effectively. I mean, but how does that translate across the country? I mean, let's say, and this is a situation I'm familiar with, you have a cardiac patient. Um, her GP is in her local neighborhood. Her cardiologist is in a different city. She's admitted to A&E. She's on several different kinds of medication. What will medics in the hospital that she's in already know about her situation? Well, it may vary, but for example, there, there, there is a record called a shared care record that is meant to produce a kind of relatively joined up view of the patient that people can access. Uh, but there is significant, how, how would I put this? There's significant variation um, across the NHS nationally in the kind of uptake of these data sharing plans. So so it, there's not there's not total consistency um, from one area to the other. It also, I guess, it really partially depends on how big a geographical area you're talking about. It varies and it's complicated, but it's it it, it isn't yet the case um, that there is a single joined up sort of view of the patient yeah, wherever you travel around England. Right, that that hasn't yet been achieved. Corey, has this patchy data sharing or this general patchy picture of the NHS? Has it always been a problem and how have previous governments tried to solve it? So in a way, what we're embarking on now feels like the Bill Murray film Groundhog Day. <laughs> so uh, efforts to join up patient data and make them more legible and useful to doctors and to hospitals and to government planners uh, go back at least to Tony Blair with a program called the National Program for IT. I mean, obviously, the NHS was much less digitized then, and it was a time of even greater reliance on paper records. But many billions of pounds were then spent on an effort to join up, a very ambitious effort to kind of join up patient records. And the program failed, nonetheless. There was then, under David Cameron in about 2015, uh, a program called Care.Data, which sought essentially to do the same thing, to pool records. Uh, and then more recently, this wasn't quite as thoroughgoing, but in 2021, uh, there was an effort to pull everybody's GP records into a central database, confusingly called GPDPR, or General Practice Data for Planning and Research. Um, all of these programs... Um, Spanning over 20 years and totaling up God knows, but certainly billions and billions and billions of taxpayer pounds have failed. Patients didn't trust the scheme. Speaking for myself, you know, I want to, and I think a lot of people I talk to want to feel confident and safe in contributing my data, my health data, not just for my care, but actually for the good of the NHS as a system as a whole, right? I'd like to actually to be able to support planning um, for, let's say, future pandemics. Um, and I might, if you asked me nicely, and I was confident of the safeguards, contribute to patient research as well. Where you start to lose people's confidence 
is if they fear that there will be uh, commercial access to their data, that a company is going to want to kind of come in and profit off of their access to that data in ways that they aren't told about, haven't consented to, and wouldn't necessarily support. So there's that. And then there are also populations in the UK who are very worried about um, collateral government use of this data because, you know, it's just unlike America, from which I originally come, this is a state-funded healthcare system, and it has sometimes been the case previously that other government departments have come for some of this data. So, for example, the Home Office had a very bad habit of going to NHS Digital, an arm of the NHS that handles IT issues and data issues and mm. dealt with patient data safety, and asking for data on migrants to help with border enforcement. That's so sinister. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem. And, you know, it, the problem got so bad and was indeed so notorious that during COVID, um, after the jabs came out, there was a, an information campaign run by the government directly targeted at people who had migrated to Britain, basically saying, look, come forward and get your jab, please. We desperately need everybody to get your jab because if you don't, obviously, the virus will spread. And we promise you're not going to be dobbed into the home office for, for coming forward to get your jab. So there we could see in a very sharp-edged way during the pandemic that there is no public health without public trust. So, Corey, just to be clear, you're saying that all of these previous efforts that the government has made, that the NHS has made to centralise patient data, billions of pounds spent, it wasn't the tech, but it was essentially public suspicion that the data might be misused, might be profited from. Yeah, look, there have absolutely been tech-teething problems for sure, but in the main, the problems aren't technical. The problems are political. Uh, because health data is political. It's, it's probably the most sensitive data about ourselves that we have. Okay, so Palantir have won this contract. It's worth £330 million over five years. Can you tell me a bit more about them? So I remember during the pandemic uh, when we first saw Palantir getting a one-pound no-bid uh, contract to manage what was then the largest pool of patient data that had ever been created, and the hair just went up on the back of my neck. I thought, what the heck are they thinking? Why are they giving the contract to this company of all companies? And the reason for that is that I used to work in a different area as a human rights lawyer. I worked um, in national security with uh, prisoners in Guantanamo Bay, with people who had been targeted by the intelligence services or the security services. Services. And so I knew them of old, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Palantir are mainly, they had no real track record in, in healthcare uh, until the COVID pandemic. They are a tech company who have mainly worked with the security services, uh, border forces, and police to help those government departments do kind of pointy state power things. So back when this uh, was perhaps more useful to their uh, to their business plan than it now is, uh, they tended to let it be known, for example, that they had um, joined up the data to help kill Osama bin Laden or in, so, in some way, right? That, that's the kind of thing that it used to be helpful to Palantir to say. Obviously, now that they want to do healthcare, it's less helpful. But anyway. Right. So they are, uh, they're, they're mainly an intelligence contractor. They provided services to the border forces to assist raids on migrants in the United States. Uh, they worked a lot with American police departments in what were then predictive policing programs, as we understand it from Freedom of Information Act documents. They'd had their eyes on NHS data since at least 2019. Mm. 
what happened in COVID? A whole, a couple of very important legal things happened during COVID. So one, uh, the normal rules on public procurement went out the window. So you didn't have to, you know, it was an emergency. You didn't have to go through a full competitive process before awarding a big government contract to somebody. It's a famous fast track corridor. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that went out the window, of course, was data protection law. So both of those things were essentially suspended for the run of the pandemic. And that meant that a whole bunch of things were possible to do with patient data during the pandemic that had never been possible before. Last week, the Department of Health lost a court case about its handling of coronavirus contracts. Now, the NHS is facing a lawsuit over one of its deals. The data store developed by controversial Silicon Valley giant Palantir. Palantir made an offer to run uh, the so-called COVID data store uh, during the pandemic for a loss leading price of one pound at the initial contract. So, you know, first one's free. They were given the contract with no tender and they managed it. That at the time in March of 2020, uh, it was known that this was controversial. And the people who wrote the blog about the system uh, from NHS England, one of whom, by the way, has gone over to work at Palantir now. Um, wow. But anyway, th they, they wrote a blog saying, this is an emergency. We've got to do this. But at the end of the emergency, the data will be destroyed or returned in line with the law, and we will close the COVID data store. We were always concerned when we saw this contract. We thought, well, this is going to be the thin end of the wedge, and if we aren't careful, this is going to turn into the permanent state of affairs. And I'm afraid that is exactly what it appears to us is happening now. What we were told would be a temporary and permanent uh, state of exception, which is Palantir managing the largest pool of patient data that the United Kingdom had ever seen, uh, is now, uh, three years later, turning into the permanent state of affairs with the federated data platform. So if listeners hadn't heard of Palantir before, it's probably because they're not really supposed to. I mean, they operate in the background. I mean, that's what they do in security, as you said, predictive policing, um, intelligence services, and now, of course, healthcare. However, they may have heard of its outspoken billionaire founder, Peter Thiel. Well, this was, uh, this was another company I started uh, in, uh, in 2004. Like in the wake of 9-11, could one do something from a libertarian or civil liberties point of view that would still be you know, tough on terrorism and, uh, and, and things like this? Corey, can you tell me about him? Peter Thiel, yes. Peter Thiel is the chair of Palantir. It's, he's thought to be its largest shareholder, although we don't really know. Um, and he is a longstanding donor to Republican political causes in the United States. He was a huge uh, funder of Donald Trump's candidacy for president in 2020. He's also funded a lot of anti-birth control kind of startups and anti-abortion candidates in the United States. You know, some of the kind of more recent hires and spokespeople behave in a slightly wounded way when it is suggested that this is a company that's mainly about spies and police and border forces and surveillance. But you say, it does what it says on the tin, mate. And quite frankly, that was the company's branding for the first many, many years of its existence. Recently, uh, I think earlier this year, speaking in the, the Oxford Union. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Peter Thiel. He basically said, The thing that seems very odd for an outside observer of Britain is that is this sort of Stockholm syndrome people have 
with respect to the NHS, where it's like uh, it's like they think it is the most wonderful thing in the world, and uh, and perhaps the first step is to just understand it as as the, you know the highways create traffic jams and welfare creates poverty and the schools make people dumb, and the NHS makes people sick. And said that ideally we would raise it to the ground and start over. So. I don't know about you, but I'm surprised that a company chaired by somebody like that is thought to share NHS values or be an appropriate provider for the NHS. So this giant tech company, Palantir, has won a contract to manage all of this NHS data. Corey, what's in it for them? Look, I want to be fair to Palantir here. They have said repeatedly, we're not a data broker like Google, right? We're not an ad company. We're not here uh, selling your data to the highest bidder. And indeed, Alex Karp said the same. That's the CEO of Palantir uh, when interviewed on the BBC a couple of weeks ago. We're the only company of our size and scale that doesn't buy your data, doesn't sell your data, doesn't transfer it to any other company. What he then did say, and this is the rub, um, the interviewer said, well, but but surely this vast new system with centralized control does make it easier for the data to be sold. And Karp himself said, well, yeah, uh, by the government. By the UK government, not by me. Okay. I, I don't have the ability to do it. You can see why people are oh, concerned then. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so he's like, look, he's just like, yeah, absolutely, it makes it easier to commercialize access to the data. I just won't be the one doing it. And I have no reason to believe that that's wrong. I'm not saying that Palantir are the ones who want to go and package it up and sell it on. I think it's about the creation of a centralized data asset. As best as I can understand from their own statements, um, Palantir just want to be paid to be the infrastructure because that's where the real money and the real power is in the modern world of computing, right? Like mm. Amazon makes huge amounts of money from AWS, Amazon Web Services, uh, as compared to its kind of package shipping for which it's better known, right? There is real, real money in data infrastructure. And so if you can get in there and be the company with the permanent contract to provide the piping and the analytics, you're golden, right? Like that is that is a gravy train uh, that you can ride for many, 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 many years. Um, Palantir uh, and indeed the government both say that Palantir are just a data processor, that it's not their job uh, to decide or defend uh, patient data. They're just the pipes and they just move it all around. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's not a secret that the NHS holds potentially the richest set of population-wide health data in the world and that Palantir aren't the first tech company to be interested in that data as a source of potential. Why is it so attractive? So NHS data is special. It may well be the most special and potentially powerful set of patient data in the world. And the reason for that is because of this kind of single-payer system, this national health system free to everybody that we have had for so many decades. For decades now, uh, doctors have been required to code what happens to you, your your medical record, not just in longhand notes, you know, the patient uh, has a history of angina, heart, heart pain, whatever. Um, they also, there's an alphanumeric code that they are supposed to write down that says has high blood pressure or, you know, history of drinking or whatever it is. There's just a whole set of alphanumeric codes. Uh, they have to do it because that's how they get paid. So that it's, it's actually an integral and has for a long time been an integral part of the billing system for NHS. But what in practice that means 
is that that code is much easier for a machine, even now, by the way, even in the world of AI, it's much easier for a machine to understand uh, than longhand notes. So if you could kind of tidy it up, get rid of duplicates, put it all together, then you would potentially be looking at the biggest, uh, longest-term, kind of population-wide, machine-readable, and that's the key, machine-readable data set possibly anywhere on the planet. And so as you can imagine, if you are a pharma company or a tech company who wants to kind of train an AI to develop a healthcare algorithm or go and do drug research, you'd really, really, really like this data to sit in one place and for it to be accessible to you. Well, then help me understand a bit more because I can see how this huge untapped reservoir of health data could be really valuable to the AI healthcare systems of the future. I can also see how that raw data could be useful even if it's anonymized. And, you know, that is one of the things we keep hearing about this, that patient data will be anonymized. So if that's the case, what might be the problem with how it's used? So the other problem that we have historically had with these debates about patient data is um, how anonymous can you ever truly be in your patient record? Because the patient record is very, 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 very specific. And the government have historically done a thing where they slightly conflate two things that are actually different. They're different in law and they're practically quite different. There's data that's truly anonymous, so a statistic, obviously. Aggregate data is pretty obviously anonymous. But as you add more detail, as you get closer to a full patient record, it becomes harder and harder and harder and harder ever to make that data truly anonymous. So let's take my GP record, right? If you took my NHS number off of it and my address and a couple of other things, you might say that that data had been, quote, de-identified or pseudonymized. Now, the problem is with all of this is that the government's current legal uh, position, which has changed a lot, but the current legal position is um, if, we've, if we have sufficiently pseudonymized your data, in other words, if we've slapped a sticker over your NHS number and a couple of other things, um, then that is data over which you no longer have a say. It's not your record anymore. It's our record, uh, and you don't control what happens to it, and you can't opt out of what we use for it. I think that's a legally contentious position, and I think it is, if they persist in that position, uh, likely to cause a real crisis of trust and confidence. Well, Corey, you mentioned earlier that previous government attempts to centralise NHS data struggled because essentially millions of patients decided to opt out of sharing their data. But this time, with this Palantir contract, patients actually don't have that choice, do they? The government has changed its story several times in the past couple of months about whether you can opt out of this system. So if you go back, if you're a very tedious person like me, and you go back to the August version of the frequently asked questions for the Federated Data Platform, it says something completely different. Uh, it says, you know, that actually people can opt out where applicable um, from certain uses of their data in the Federated Data Platform. Now, that has changed, as you say, and now what they say is something different. Now they say, well, it's actually mostly for direct care, so that you can't opt out of. But you tell me what direct care the people in NHS England at the center are doing. Direct care is generally done by your GP, by your hospital. Um, so that's a big question. Can you opt out or can't you opt out of your data being used? You cannot opt out of your data being used in the hospital or community trust or mental health trust where you're receiving your care. So but beyond that, that? You cannot opt out. But if you have concerns, you can ask questions. No, but what's the point of asking a question unless you can opt out? Can you opt out of that data being shared beyond the region or the trust in which you're being treated? 
Yeah, so there's a completely separate thing, and it's really important not to get confused. And then they also say, well, and for the very few secondary uses we're doing, so uses beyond your care, which, again, were really at the heart of the contract when it was first announced, for uses beyond your care, you know, the data is going to be kind of anonymized, and so you don't have the right to opt out of that. That is actually a legally contentious position. Coming up, how did Palantir win the confidence of the government? and the NHS. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. So, Corey, the NHS has awarded this major data contract to Palantir, an American company known for working closely with intelligence agencies, military organizations around the world, including the CIA and the UK Ministry of Defense. What's been the reaction? Well, uh, the British Medical Association, which is the trade union, obviously, for uh, uh, doctors and so forth, issued a statement of serious concern saying, well, you know, we're being told that there isn't enough money to give junior doctors raises and, and to pay for a lot of really urgently needed um, kit in hospitals. So we're surprised to see hundreds of millions of pounds going on the system. And oh, by the way, if it destroys our relationship of trust with our patients, then we can't do our job. Just going back to this question of patient trust, uh, over 6,000 people opted out in a single day on announcement day. Now, we don't know yet whether that's the thin end of what is going to become a big spike. As I say, during 2021, during the crisis of trust over the GP data grab, 100,000 people were opting out in a day. So it hasn't yet got as bad as that. But you can go and look at the data yourself, and you can see there's already a bit of a, tr- uh, a spike that is indicative 
uh, that people don't really know and don't really trust where this is going. And partly that's because the government haven't been clear. They haven't actually worked slowly and talked to people about what they want it for um, and what they plan to do with it. And they haven't made, in my view, ironclad promises that there will be no third-party commercial use, uh, even of de-identified data that people haven't consented to, and there will be no third-party government use. I think if those were in a stone tablet somewhere, (laughs) that actually maybe you would see people trusting the system a whole lot more. Corey, up until now, we've been talking about the NHS at the top of this decision, but this was primarily a government policy. You said it seemed obvious to you that Palantir were always going to win this contract. This has been a government for a while, as we know, where it pays to have the right friends. And during COVID, there was a lot of support uh, for Palantir in number 10. Palantir hired quite a lot of the right folks. So one of their main lobbyists now is a guy called Isaac Levito, who also basically ran uh, Rishi Sunak's campaign. They also had global counsel with Peter Mandelson. I mean, they've kind of got all the sides covered. Uh, They had meetings with pretty senior NHS officials like the chair of the board of NHS England over watermelon cocktails about using Palantir to join up patient data. But no other competitor had the opportunity to test or pilot or refine its systems in live tests of NHS hospitals, right? Only one bidder had the opportunity to do that, and that was Palantir. So they have been running what the government said at one time were 36 pilots of Palantir software in hospital trusts all around the country. Uh, and they, they've claimed that there have been great benefits from this. To be fair, Chelsea and Westminster Hospital say that they had a significant reduction in wait list times. But what the government have never done is given a full accounting of what happened with all 36 of the trusts who tested Palantir software, which if we're going to blow at least 330 million pounds on the system seems like a fair question to ask. Does the thing work? Is it going to be useful to the hospitals? Again, remember, no other bidder had this chance. So uh, the Health Service Journal, the trade magazine, just went around and started asking all of the hospitals who had supposedly piloted this system uh, if they could cite any specific benefits from it. And at the time of announcement of this deal, this £330 million deal, eight trusts had cited specific benefits from it. Eight. Just eight of 36. So there's a question about whether trusts want it, Mm. whether it's actually going to be useful to all of the hospitals who are supposed to be the ultimate customers of this system. And that too, right? If hospitals don't want it and patients don't trust it, then the system isn't going to work, plain and simple. So Corey, what happens now? Will there be any legal challenges or is this just it? I think there probably is a risk of some legal challenges. I think there is going to be a question about patients' rights to opt out. I think there may be other groups who take a case around that question as well. Um, So there is a kind of legal process. But ultimately, this is a political question, and we need to have an open political debate. And I I have to say, Foxclub, for our part, would really like to get out of the really repetitive and unhelpful debate that we all find ourselves in, where somebody in the center says, wouldn't it be great to join up patient data, but they're not clear enough about uses, they're not clear enough about safeguards and about protecting patient choice, and the whole thing falls flat on its face, and we go back to start all over again, uh, just a few billion quid poorer, right? We don't actually have to do it that way. There are lots of other systems that were built during the pandemic um, and local examples of pooling patient data for good that could be built on more carefully, uh, taking patients with you, and frankly, costing less money, that would be a better idea. Mm. But look, the announcement of a preferred bidder is the start of a debate. 
it's not the end of the debate, and there is everything still to play for. And so those of us who are concerned about the future of patient data in the NHS, who want to preserve patient choice and public value in the use of NHS data, I think there's more work to do than ever. But we could get to a better place. Um, the government just has to be willing to be humble, be open, and to listen to people. Well, let's see. Corey, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Corey Crider, a lawyer and co-founder of the advocacy group Foxglove. You can read her long read titled Our Health Data is About to Flow More Freely, Like It or Not, over at theguardian.com, or you can hear it in full on our sister podcast, The Audio Long Read. Find that wherever you listen to this. Earlier this year, a spokesperson for Palantir said, As a software company, we don't collect or monetize data. We simply provide the tools to help customers organize and understand their own information. And precisely because our software is used in some of the most sensitive information environments in the world, it is built to ensure data sharing is controlled, auditable, and in accordance with customer-defined purposes only. Matthew Taylor, the chief executive of the NHS Confederation, said the platform provided by Palantir would be game-changing. He said, clinicians will be able to access live data of available theatre slots, staff availability, and individual patient data suitable for particular procedures at the touch of a button. He added that it could also help the NHS improve how long patients wait for treatment. And that's it for today. I'm Nashin Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Tom Glasser and Ruth Abrahams. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.